resilience. It's the reason we created this podcast, but what is it? I want to start today with something that Maria Papitas said last episode. We tend to think about resilience as those assets, the characteristics that keep people hopeful, moving forward, positive. And then resiliency is sort of the actions, right? The problem solving, the communicating. And so resiliency, resiliency skills, I tend to think about it that way. What are those resiliency skills that we can cultivate that builds resilience? Kay Megan, what does resilience mean to you? I guess when I when I think of resilience, I always relate it to the physical sense of resilience. So, I mean, if you've got old tires and they're bald and um, the rubber is starting to crack, they don't bounce back as well when you hit bumps in the road or anything along those lines or mud. When you've got newer tires and the rubber is nice and bouncy, when you hit those bumps or those potholes or those puddles or whatever else, you can glide through them or bounce back from them. That car doesn't go shaking all over the place. And it's the same sort of thing, you know, with with mental resilience or emotional resilience. If you have that, it allows you to bounce back from those bumps and potholes in your life. Today, we've got three different stories of resilience for you, each highlighting three unique ways of developing your mental fortitude. Some you'll expect and some you definitely won't. We'll meet a military intelligence officer, a pumpkin with a past, and Louise, the 600-pound pig. This is Cultivating Resilience, the show where farm care starts with self-care. I'm Hans Hageman. And I'm Kay Megan Washington. Our first story is about a farm whose existence, like many, was challenged by COVID. I'm going to speak for you. I was going to speak for you. Okay. That's Matt and Stephanie Barfield. They're married, if you couldn't tell. And together, they run Chesterfield Heirlooms. We used to look at our farm like it was a a history lesson for the adventurous pilot. And uh, this uh, sort of came to be after a love of history and gardening and food. And it really kind of got started once we we purchased our our first house together uh, in 2005. And as as a present... My mother sent me six heirloom tomato plants that she bought on QVC or Home Shopping Network or some one of those one of those uh, shopping platforms, and uh, we stuck them in pots on the deck and sort of nursed them through. And maybe got a tomato or two, and one of those tomatoes was a Cherokee purple. And I remember we just we cut it open and we we ate it and thought wow, there's something to this. Not only does it look different, but it tastes amazing. And so then I talked to Stephanie. I was like, hey, are you cool if I just till up the whole backyard and (laughs) put like 40 of these things in? Pre-COVID, primarily our business was wholesale business with local restaurants. So that's kind of what really launched the farm and gave us the confidence to make it a real thing. The whole yard is was a quarter of an acre, so we're talking, it was small, very small. It started with tomatoes, and then it took on a life of its own into about 40 different varieties and types of vegetables. Could you talk about your approach to growing and why heirlooms? It was the perfect combination of history and farming 
and flavor. So it, it's unique in a sense that each one of these crops tells a story along with tasting amazing and looking, maybe even looking a little different. So one of, for another example of a, maybe a different crop that's not a tomato, one of the winter squashes we grow is uh, a variety called the Seminole pumpkin. And they, they trace this pumpkin back to the 1600s. And when the Spanish conquistadors first came into Florida, they found these Seminole pumpkins growing from the cypress trees. That variety of squash was cultivated by the Seminole Indians, and they used to plant the seeds around the base of the, base of the cypress trees and train them to grow up. So it's been around, that variety has been around for hundreds of years. And that's just one story. I mean, really, pretty much everything that we grow on the farm has its own unique story. Heirlooms are fascinating and delicious, but they aren't particularly resilient. There have been plenty of times when we're running out there before a major storm comes in because they don't like water. And when they receive too much water, they break. And at that point, you're you're basically making tomato soup. Um, so we've spent a pretty good number of storms over the years just going through a quick, super quick pick <laughs> of like 4,000 plants. I call them prima donna sometimes. I mean, they want they want it just right. I mean, they want the water at their feet. Are you calling them divas? They are divas, <laughs> and they want they want the air just right, and they want bright, sunny. They can't handle adversity that well. That said, I think that the flavor of those varieties is worth worth the risk and the extra work to cultivate them. Because of what they grow, Matt and Stephanie sold mostly to local restaurants. But the pandemic forced them to reevaluate fast. When COVID hit, those chefs had to shut down. And I assume you also had to make certain adjustments and had to pivot. Can you tell us about that experience? It was that week when everything was closing up. Everybody was told to mask up and, you know, everybody was just really panicked. So um, the shoppers at the market were panic shopping and Matt and almost every other vendor there sold out within an hour, which which we just don't do often. Not that fast. Not that fast. So we knew we had this space and we had made a lot of friends who were farmers and producers. And we thought we can provide an outlet for people to purchase what they need, what they want, right in our backyard. At the time, that backyard wasn't ready to host a full farmer's market. In fact, it wasn't ready to host anybody. When we purchased the building, the whole building was being held up by one two-by-four. The termites had eaten all the studs out of it. I called my buddies, because I'm, I'm not that handy. I called all my buddies. They came over. We jacked the walls up one at a time with a bottle jack. We replaced everything. We totally renovated the back to our packing shed, the area that was the, the garage. We know that our strengths may not be in building an infrastructure, but, but we, we have friends. We, we have friends, and, and we leave some things to the experts. We'll probably thank them for the rest of our lives, but, you know, they were also there to help us put up the drywall and spackle and paint and help us really make that reality within 14 days. So that's how the farm stand came to be. We started probably with maybe eight to 10 partners, and now we've got 30 producers in the building. Here's the first lesson in building resilience. Be resourceful. 
when the main source of income for their business disappeared overnight, Matt and Stephanie created a new outlet. When they looked at an old barn on their property, they saw a potential farm stand. And when they didn't know how to fix it up, they called on their friends who did. We're first-generation farmers, so we may not have the access to the flashy equipment and resources for cultivation and stuff like that, but we use what we have to get it done. Keeping your mind open to alternate possibilities allows you to pivot quickly and means that one failure doesn't spell the end for you. But while pivoting showed the Barfields a new path, it was another resilient quality that allowed them to travel down it. What advice would you give other farmers who were experiencing abrupt changes of any sort? What talents, skills do they need to outsource? What things should they be developing now to ride this kind of a wave? First thing you do is just take a deep breath. (laughs) Take a deep breath. It's not going to be easy, but if you can decide what your first main goal is, then do that and start working towards that goal. And then go to goal number two and goal number three and just keep going. Breaking big tasks down into manageable pieces helps enable persistence, another key pillar of resiliency. And persistence isn't something you're born with. It's something you learn. From January, you know, when Matt's starting to think about things to March and, and, and you're, you're moving forward, what were the conversations at the dinner table like? Was it, were, how, were, how were Matt and Stephanie built emotionally? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a whole nother conversation. Well, I, well let's, let's, let's at least get a little bit of it because I'm fascinated by the fact there were so many people so scared about what was going to happen to their business. And from what I'm hearing, you all said, okay, this is the situation. Now let's do this to address it. What else happened there? The jobs that Stephanie had, she was an event planner. So she's really the glue that keeps the whole thing together. And so we're talking about an idea, and then she goes into task manager, and it's, okay, this, 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 and this. She was able to create, in a very short period of time, an online outlet that kept the communication and allowed a lot of the customers to pre-order, which really helped with the success of launching that farm stand. And she was really able to keep the transition organized in a fashion that we were consistent and we delivered on meeting the expectations. You just keep the wheels moving. You just have to keep moving forward. And realize, too, that it's not going to be perfect. Nothing goes off without a hitch. Mm -hmm. But just go. We've learned from a lot of mistakes. A lot of the knowledge that we have, we've learned from mistakes, and, and we have more mistakes to make. But we were really excited. I mean, the feeling was excitement and Let's just do this the best that we can and learn from the mistakes and make improvements and just keep going. This is important. Persistence isn't stubbornness. It's not trying the same thing over and over until it works. It's the ability to keep trying altogether, to continue looking for solutions, even when you don't succeed initially. I think both of us, we have to be very rational, too. I mean, if something's not working and you've tried different ways and if it continues not to work, it's time to move on. It's time to to try something else. Like, I've succumbed to the fact that I'll never be able to grow a lemon tree in Maryland, and that's okay. So you just, you work with what you have. You work with the soil that you have and the equipment that you have, and you just use those as your strengths, too. Even amidst their hard work. Matt and Stephanie draw boundaries, which allow them to de-stress and keep things in perspective. Stephanie talked about taking a deep breath. 
in addition to that, do you have any kind of self-care practices that, that allow you to move at this kind of a pace and this flexibly? We do. We do. We do. Sunday we do. is our day. We have two boys who are eight and four. So we make Sunday our family day as much as possible, whether that is— And Sunday's sort of non-negotiable. I mean, yeah, Sunday, yeah. you know, unless the place is on fire, like Sunday's, Sunday's the day. There's no— there's no work. There's nothing. And as much as we would love to open our store another day, Sunday just won't be that day for that reason. Because we truly believe that our our time with our kids as kids is limited. So we want to give them as much of us as we can and, and really just experience them being little and, and silly and fun. Our boys at eight and four are already <laughs> thinking that they're the, the CEOs and the CFOs. <laughs> and all their time is on the tractor. <laughs> and daddy should be doing the weeding. Yeah, they, like, uh, <laughs> they don't really want to do the work part. <laughs> Resilience isn't just for survival. These practices, quick adaptation, step-by-step persistence, and strict boundaries have allowed the bar fields to thrive during uncertain times, and they're not turning back anytime soon. Now, with COVID receding, are you just going to stay on the path that you started on in March, or have things, are things different as you see them going forward? No, we, we're still going forward. It just, it's like the path just changes and it keeps winding, but we're building our store more. We're trying to decide what to do with the other half of our building, whether it's expanding the store or adding a new feature. We are speaking with new potential wholesale customers to grow that portion of the business. When we were first getting started, it was all tomatoes all the time. And eventually it grew to a wide range of crops, and it was 100% restaurants in the beginning. And that has changed to offer the farm store one farmer's market. And moving forward, we want to create that space where it's shifted from 100% restaurants to an experience-based business. It's different, it's exciting, it's a little bit exotic in a good way. I mean, we're not done yet. We, we have, I don't know how much longer we have in us, but uh, we're just kind of getting started, so. Hans, how do you cultivate resilience? I guess coming from the stoic philosophy side, I daily contemplate my death and try to focus on, on with, with that knowledge, what does it mean in terms of my relationships and how I'm going to uh, approach life. I don't know if you saw my face when you said that. <laughs> when got a scoop of tuna salad and you said, you know, contemplate my own death and I was like. <laughs> <laughs> Our next story is about two veteran farmers who are using their experience to help develop resilience in others. Right after high school, I enlisted in the Marines, spent four years there. That's Jeff Saley, owner of Centurion Farm in upstate New York. Got out for about a year and a half, did a little bit of college, and decided I wanted to pursue a career in the military for a bit longer and joined the Army so I could be a member of the 82nd Airborne and then ended up doing a a 20-year career. After he left the military, Jeff spent a decade in banking but living out in the country was always in the back of his head. So I got out, spent about 10 years in banking, and right about 2008, 2009, when that crisis was hitting, I was sort of thinking that maybe 
living in a city wasn't what I wanted to do and rekindled my interest in farming. And that's when my wife and I, Nina, bought this property here in New York that we farm now. The kicker for us was attending a, an event called Arm to Farm, which was hosted by NCAT and the NCRS and a couple other organizations. And it was intended to introduce veterans who were introduced in, interested in agriculture to farming. And so in 2016, we incorporated and started farming. And that's what we've been doing for five years now. I think I'm a little bit different than Jeff. Jeff is a really deep thinker, and I think he's always been like that since he was a young man. That's Ann Devon, owner of Chase Stream Farm in Maine. I'm Ann Devon, and I was in the Marine Corps active duty for 27 years. I served as an intelligence officer, serving everywhere from Somalia to Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, I traveled and, and lived in both Korea, Japan, and I traveled throughout the far Russian East. And I was just honestly surfing around the internet and saw about some stories about veterans who were farming. And it just really resonated with me. So we bought a 72 acre farm that was already um, organically certified. And so it had great infrastructure. And we uh, purchased that property in 2016. I retired and we immediately started farming. And then we were able to kind of also jump in with the um, farmer veteran community. ANSI's farming is a great way to bridge the gap between military and civilian life. So there's a lot of things that, that farming gives a veteran. If you take a veteran that might be suffering from or struggling with a post-traumatic stress, a traumatic brain injury, going into a traditional industry or going to work for Google or sitting behind a desk is really not appropriate. It doesn't help them and it makes their situation even worse. And so if there's anyone that has those types of barriers to you know, working in your traditional office setting, farming is fantastic. As service members, both Ann and Jeff learned important resilience skills. Probably the, the most significant skill I took away from the military was detailed planning. In the Army, we have something called the military decision-making process, the MDMP. And the detailed planning skills that we learned have served us really well as we've gone into farming. In fact, we just completed an orchard plan, written business plans, written goals, written vision, written mission. Everything has to be written out in detail. And then once we have a plan in place, we can begin to execute. And that's how we approach farming. And that, that is the critical thing that, that the military gave to me. Detailed planning allows you to understand your situation and all its variables more fully. It can be a great tool for resilience, even when the plan goes awry. Okay, and now we're ready to get water. Well, not sure what happened there. Okay. We don't have water. People may not understand that when you're in the military, and especially depending on, on your rank and where you are in your career, a lot of planning the end result of the planning is the plan. <laughs> so very rarely do you actually get to execute. So I counter that with farming in that any crop plan that I put together, whether it fails or succeeds, is still seeing some kind of results of the planning that I put into it. Okay, we're in business. We have had some, some notable failures in a couple of crops here and there. But what we take away from it is an opportunity to learn about what we did wrong 
and what we're going to have to do next time. You know, we had this, this large field and we planted beans in it and it was a new field that we'd recently broken ground on and it just got overrun with weeds beyond our ability to control. And so we stepped back from that and said, okay, we, we don't want that to happen again. What are we going to do next time that's going to be different, that's going to allow that effort to be successful so we haven't wasted that labor? One way Jeff and Ann are nurturing this skill in their fellow veterans is by giving them access to the information they need to create plans. I think one of the most helpful things we can do for veterans is what was done for us, and that is to expose us to the range of agricultural opportunities that exist. And in our case, we sort of looked, we said, well, raising cows looks like fun, raising chickens looks like fun. Part two of that, which was also given to us by this experience, was using the NRCS's soil maps to take a really dialed in look at our property and say, what's suited for us to farm on this property that we own? So I think beef production would be great, but I'm mostly woods and hills and I don't have much pasture, so we're really not suited for beef. So the idea of an ideal path is we're engaging the veteran as they leave service, we're offering agriculture as an employment opportunity that can be explored, and we expose veterans to the range of activities in agriculture, and then we step back and say, go see what you want to do. And when you run into an obstacle, here's where you can find a resource to help you overcome that obstacle. And, and that's the effort that, that Ann and I are engaged in right now. Ann and Jeff's systematic planning is also on display with their work on Farsan's veteran cohort, where they've developed a framework for understanding veteran stress. The five S are, are, are based on some um, agricultural risks. So we've grouped them into farming, which is addresses the production side of you know how to farm, how to grow things. Um, the next one is family, and we look at that as the risks associated with, you know, having poor communication with either your community or with internally with your family. Um, the third one we refer to is finance. So obviously financing and running a business is quite critical. Future is what we kind of refer to as the succession of your farm. You know, that can be kind of stressful is like, where, what are you going to do after the year time farming is over? And then finally fitness, which includes both mental and physical fitness. You know, it's really a framework for us to be able to look at the different areas of stress. As part of their work, the veteran cohort conducted a survey polling vets in agriculture. One of the key findings was about isolation. So what we're seeing from the survey is there's a hunger out there for veterans to be afforded opportunities to tour farms and discover things and to engage with other veterans and engaged in agriculture. So veterans want to get together with other veterans who are farming and spend time engaging. And I think that is because as veterans, camaraderie is a big part of the life. You're forever meeting new people, but there's always this sense of being part of a team. And farming can be a very isolating experience. Many times you're spending all day by yourself out there in the fields and you might not see a person for a whole day. We, my wife and I live kind of off the beaten track and I call it being up on my hill and sometimes I won't leave my property for a week. So I don't see people. To give veteran farmers the information and community they need to succeed and develop something called Boots to Bushels. So Boots to Bushels is a program that is unique to Maine it um, started as an outshoot of work that I was doing with Maine AgriBility as their veteran outreach coordinator. And as I was working with more and more veterans, I identified that a lot of the trauma 
that was uh, a barrier to them being successful in, in farming as a business was related to traumatic brain injury, some post-traumatic stress, depression, that more so than, than physical challenges. And so we did a one-day symposium and it was met with great accolades and people loved it and they just wanted more. And so I created a, a curriculum that's a nine-month program that addresses pretty much every one of those risks and we do 10 classes online from January through April. And then the rest of the growing season is dedicated to doing farm visits. And it actually just evolved into this training program that we started in 2020 during the pandemic. We had another program last year in 2021. We had about 15 folks kind of get through the program. This year, we opened it up to civilians as well as, as veterans and their family members. And we have 34 people in the program and it's just going gangbusters. Anne's work is an example of another powerful thing that farming offers veterans, a sense of purpose. I know a lot of the veterans that I work with, um, having a sense of purpose is, is paramount to why they went into farming and serving their community. Because I think if you have spent your entire adult life in the service of others, and then when you come out, you can't find that sense of purpose, that can be really detrimental to mental health in all those aspects of it. And so I think a lot of the veterans that come into farming, that's what they talk about the most, is that they've got another reason to say yes to get up in the morning, whether it's they have to go care for their livestock or they have to go sell their vegetables at, at the market. It's just another sense of purpose. And, and I, I refer to it as a, our next yes, you know, because at some point, whatever age you were when you joined the military, you raised your right hand and you said yes to serving our country. And um, I think farming and veterans is just another way for veterans to say yes to serving their community in whichever way they can. Whether it's feeding your community or training your fellow veterans, a sense of purpose can also be its own avenue to resiliency. Because purpose takes you outside yourself. It gives you perspective and a sense of satisfaction in the same way that giving a gift feels even better than receiving one. For Jeff, resilience is itself a purpose worth pursuing. And Jeff's idea of resilience includes everything we've discussed, planning, purpose, and connection. So your podcast series is on resilience. And so I think it's important to understand how we define resilience and why resilience is important to why I'm farming. Looked this up last night. Merriam-Webster says resilience is the ability to recover from or adjust easily to misfortune or change. I define it as a measure of one's ability to effectively deploy resources including knowledge pools to meet and overcome an exigent need brought about by an abrupt change in circumstances. So why are we focused on resiliency? I'm focused on resiliency because I read books like Limits to Growth and Kunstler's World Made by Hand, The Long Emergency, and other of these sort of, my wife calls them doomy books that point to maybe some challenges for the human race coming along here in the not too distant future based on resource depletion, Social justice is important, climate change, all of these things are facing the human race. And I take it as my personal responsibility to build resilience first for myself and then for my family and then for my community and to display an example of resiliency to others so that when more of us need to be thinking about it, there are tools and strategies and examples in place. And I think that is a core component of why I'm choosing to farm the way I farm. I told you he was a deep thinker. So this is Jeff Saley again. It's uh, Saturday, April 23rd, and my weeding companion pointed out to me that I didn't explain what a hurry hurry knife is. So a hurry hurry knife is a Japanese gardening knife. I believe it's a Japanese gardening knife. 
and uh, it's got a thick handle and about a, a six to eight inch really thick blade usually serrated on one side sometimes both sides are sharpened sometimes not I have both varieties but it is a, a knife that you can stick down into the ground and get well underneath the, the root of a weed and then you can send that you can you can pop the soil up with that knife and get it out I, I can't give you a visual unfortunately because this is radio but I'm hoping you're getting the idea you can certainly look it up hurry hurry knife our final guest is one of those larger-than-life people that's just hard to describe. I'll let him introduce himself. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Ryan, a.k.a. Pork Ryan. Uh, people call me the Pork Evangelist, but my whole goal is I like to tell people I'm a pig nerd. Ryan is something of a pig consultant. So I go across the country as well as overseas uh, to teach people about outdoor, sustainable, niche, alternative pig farming something that you normally don't see in comparison to the commercial operations. And I assume that's particularly important when, you, when you're talking about uh, people who are homesteading or doing kind of non-traditional farming, because how do they learn what that path is supposed to be? Well, it's interesting that you say non-traditional farming, because the reality is commercial farming is non-traditional farming. The homesteading, outdoor farming is actually traditional. Um, I think that's ironic in a lot of ways because um, we've lost our connection with the land so much that we now view the land as not even being a traditional way of producing something anymore. Ryan worked with all sorts of crops and livestock before transitioning to a more advisory role. But there's a special reason he works with pigs, and her name is Louise. Pigs are the first animal to humble my heart in a very meaningful way. At the farm that I first started working at, we had so many problems with pigs. We had a sow named Louise, and she was an English large black, probably weighed about 600 pounds. This girl broke out of four different infrastructures. I'm like, all right, okay, I'll be the hero. I'll save the day. I bring her into our isolation pen that had plenty of space, right? And I look at Louise, and she looked at me, I was like, you know what, something just don't feel right. So then I turned around one more time. She literally charged the chain link fence gate, lifted it off its hinges, and flung it up. It looked like 20 feet in the air. I, I'm not even kidding. You could see a literal triangular dent where her nose met the bottom of that frame of that gate. I about lost my mind. I can move chickens physically. I can physically pick up a goat. I can psychologically outmaneuver cows. You know, But when it comes to pigs... Like, you can't move a pig. A pig moves you. That was a breaking point for me because I was like, I keep failing with this enterprise. I don't know how to manage it well. But at that moment, Louise was trotting over to me in victory. And I honestly, Hans, I got down on one knee. Uh, I did not propose to her, but I made a proposition. And I said, you know, Louise, I want to love you so hard that just maybe I'll understand you. So fast forward. Now I identify as a recovering addict from multiple addictions, and I see how my story really has evolved as it relates to pigs, because all my life I felt misunderstood, and I realized that pigs are the exact same way. The culture views pigs as stupid, dirty animals. They're actually very intelligent. They're actually very hygienic. So I could relate to a pig at that level, and it showed me that I could have a lot of empathy for myself and that I need to circle myself around people who do understand me and who do appreciate me. 
Ryan's a young guy, but he's faced plenty of challenges already in his life. My father abandoned me when I was eight. Hadn't seen that dude in 20 years, man. My mother, who uh, was ended up being a single parent, not by choice, was a strong provider. But as a single parent for her, she had a hard time being present for me emotionally, spiritually, and mentally. And those were areas that I really needed in my life at a young age. So I suffered from a lot of abandonment, feelings of abandonment, inadequacy. And the way that I expressed my fear was through addiction to sex, pornography, and quote-unquote love, addiction to uh, codependent relationships, both for friends, families, and uh, romantic interests, addiction to media, binge eating, like food, man. When I'm angry, sad, alone, frustrated, fearful, I feel lonely or depressed, I ran to food. I didn't run to God. I ran to everything except the one thing that could really provide me the comfort and stability that I needed in my life. Ryan's journey to recovery and resilience started with acceptance. He needed to be honest with himself about his situation before he could take steps to fix it. Acknowledging his own struggles helped Ryan get his addiction under control and has helped him with other mental health challenges, too. And I I raised my hand to that, even in my own business. Recently, I was battling depression. I'm still coming out of that, man. There are days where, like, I don't want to do anything. What does that do? That hurts my, my growth as a business owner. That hurts my, my growth as a person. And one thing that I realized is I need not just recovery. I need a therapist, man. So I hired a therapist. I'll be seeing them this Friday. And let me tell you, I look forward to it because I'm tired of being depressed, man. That's what you got to do. And so I realized that the first priority is not making more money, not merchandising, not branding. It's getting a therapist. I need that first before anything else. I need that right now. I might need to be on some medication. I might need that too. You know what? I'm okay with that. I'm open to that because I want to stay sane. I don't want to go back into addiction. I don't want to go back into uh, living in insecurity. I want to be a maximum service to other people. And the only way I can do that is if I am physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually present for people. It's hard to do that when I'm in depression. It's hard to do that when anyone's in depression. This acceptance is a type of self-awareness, which is also a key facet of resilience. Self-awareness keeps you in touch with your emotions and mental well-being so that you don't suddenly find yourself in crisis. And Ryan has a practice to help his circle tap into what they're feeling. So I do feelings check-ins with people. I don't ask them what you're thinking. I ask them, how are you feeling today? And they might give me, oh, well, I, I feel kind of like blah, 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 blah. I was like, no, 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 no. That's what you're thinking. How are you actually feeling? And that allows people to really slow down and think about how they actually feel and be able to process it from that space. Just feeling your emotions can be hard if you're not used to it. Another thing that was said to me is, Ryan, it's okay to be angry. What? It's okay. I can be mad? It's okay to be angry. Just don't be abusive. I can be angry, but I don't have to cuss anybody out. I can be angry, but I don't have to internalize it and call myself worthless. One of my sponsors had told me, he said, Ryan, you got four options when you're angry. You can either repress it and it turns into depression. You can either try to be nice and polite, accommodating, stuff like that. Yet your anger will seep out in unsuspecting ways on unsuspecting people. Option number three, you go wall back in addiction, go act out whatever 
or the fourth option, which is the one that only works, is be honest with somebody else about how you feel. I can't tell you how that about changed my life. Just changed my life. Learning to understand and control his emotions was a key part of Ryan's path to resilience. So, too, was the ability to release control. Ryan found this through faith and through his connection to the land itself. How much of being in agriculture, how much of working with pigs, how much of environmentalism, how much of that contributes to the healing that you've undertaken? So nature was always my first love. I use nature. Well, I might actually cry off talking about this. I use nature as a way of escape. I didn't have any control in my life. I couldn't control people to love me the way that I need to be loved. And nature was that space where I can go out into the woods and play with the bugs. And that was my way of just connecting with something that was greater than my circumstances. And so eventually that passion for nature evolved into agricultural passion as well. The humility that faith and nature provided allowed Ryan to take a break from thinking about himself. I get too tired of, of just thinking about me. It gets exhausting. It's so exhausting to just think about, about me all the time. And when I get to connect with something that is ever-changing, yet still constantly present, that is an experience that is both freeing and challenging. But in the challenge, I'm allowed to be free. That allows for me to grow in humility that if I have a control of the land, why even try to control life situations that are literally out of my control? And so I think that's a part of my recovery story when it comes to that. Another part of Ryan's journey towards resilience was understanding that he couldn't get better alone. He needed a support system. But part of the caveat to that for me was, this is important, at least within the Christian faith, is I couldn't do it alone. I couldn't do it by myself. I needed community. But as we've discussed, community can be hard to come by. We lack community in this space so desperately. And some of it's not inherently our fault. I think it's an infrastructure fault as well, because in farming, you might be five miles away from your neighbor. Some people, 20 miles away from a neighbor, you know? So you start thinking about what does community look like for rural America? And unfortunately, rural America is wrapped up with not being the most advanced when it comes to modern thoughts and modern beliefs, um, especially when it comes to mental health. Don't, Don't you ever talk about that in rural America. And so I feel like that's the first thing is facilitating conversations of vulnerability, honesty, as it relates to business, farming, marketing, and any other slew of conversations within that. Once Ryan realized he could lean on other people, he saw that he could also be a resource to them. He started inviting others into the world of agriculture and building a community of his own. That was one of the fundamental parts that just God's gift in my life to where um, I could connect with something, but not just connect with it alone, but bring other people into it now. And I think that's the important part is I tell people, you have a place in agriculture. I don't care if you're a black Latino or sorry, Latinx, if you're Asian, whatever you might identify with, if you're gay, lesbian, whatever you are. I think everyone has a place in environmentalism. Everyone has a place in agriculture. And so I went from thinking about how do I benefit from 
being in nature, being in agriculture to how do I allow other people to benefit from that? So I think farming does that for me. It allows for me to be able to create spaces where I can invite other people in to God's creation, to a space that's vulnerable and honest. And so I think it's something cool when you get to disconnect from all the things that don't really matter and connect with something that does, especially when you bring people along the way. So what have we learned about resilience? What are some key elements? Well, you've got resourcefulness, persistence, and boundaries from the barfields. And then there's planning and a sense of purpose from our veterans, Anne and Jeff. Finally, we have what Ryan talked about. Self-awareness, community, and connecting to something greater than yourself. But if there's one thing we want you to take away from this podcast, it's that you matter. You matter, whether you're farming or not. Like we say at the top of every show, you can't take care of your farm if you don't first take care of yourself. So develop these skills and lean on your support systems. You know better than anyone what you can harvest when you plant a seed and help it grow. Thank you so much for listening to our first season. If this show has been useful to you, please share it with someone you think it might help. And thanks to our guests, Matt and Stephanie Barfield, Ann Devon, Jeff Saley, and Ryan Curitan. Cultivating Resilience is a podcast from the Farm and Ranch Stress Assistance Network. Your hosts are me, Hans Hageman, and Kay Megan Washington. Writing and production for this show is by Andrew Gannam, with sound mixing and editing by Alex Bennett at Lower Street Media. Until next time, stay grounded. And the list goes on and on and on and on.